Hey, we're live. We are, lady and gentlemen, we're back in the studio. <laughs> what can I say? Jamie, welcome. Ian, hi. Nice to see you again. In the studio. In, Amazing. In the flesh. Can't it's even fun. remember the last time. We tried to work it out. We couldn't. That's how long ago. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to say because the pandemic is over, but we're at least having a little hiatus, a moment, a crack in the clouds to come into the studio. But we have two lovely guests. Claire Gavin, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Ian. Hi, thank you. Right, now, you know me, I'm Ian. Jamie, who are you? I'm Jamie Merrick, I'm from Salesforce, and I'm your partner in crime, have been for a while. Enjoying That's right. Very much. Unless, of course, we're giving evidence, in which case I've never seen you before. <laughs> um, Claire, why don't you introduce yourself, tell everyone who you are? Hi, yes. So I'm Claire Bottle. I'm the Chief Executive of the UK Warehousing Association, and I'm still going with the whole honeymoon period thing because I've been doing that job for about five months. And in my spare time, I'm also the Vice Chair of Women in Logistics and Chair of Governors at Northampton School for Girls. Wow. Okay, well, that's the end of that podcast then. <laughs> that's pretty busy. <laughs> uh, so welcome, Claire. Gavin, uh, follow that. Gavin Nathan. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Altaflora. We're a health technology platform that collects data from patients as they use medicines to see what the effect is on, on, the, on their symptoms. My background, I was a tech entrepreneur and many moons ago I was a cover star of internet retailing in 2011 in my original role at Facebook as That's head of retail true. there. That's true. Which is where we first met. And I think that might be one of the last times we saw each other yeah. as well. Even though we found out that I do actually walk past your house all the time. So uh, uh, funny coincidences. Right. Well, look, as usual, we haven't got much of uh, an agenda. We're just going to wander through it. But let's start off with you, Claire. So welcome again. Five months in your role. Before you tell us about the role, just give us a thumbnail of how you got to that place. So what was your path? And then tell us about uh, UKWA. It's hard to know how far back to start. So um, I'll canter through some of the early years because I studied the history of art at university uh, and that doesn't automatically lead you to where I've ended up. But I got pregnant by mistake and had my son while I was still a student. Uh, and that meant wow. when I first started work, I wanted a nine to five job because I was a single parent. And I happened to be offered a job as a secretary in a transport company. And I've been in logistics ever since. Oh, my God. Right. Uh, can I just get the film rights? Just yes. just say yes. That's what I need to do. <laughs> of course. That's extraordinary. So um, there you were in logistics, single mum. And this would have been a time, what, before uh, everything was totally computerised. So you're doing secretarial things, filing and paper, or are we yeah, well, in a different century? We're talking mid-90s, early to mid-90s. Yeah, I am that old. Mm. Um, and so I had a computer, but nobody did their own typing. Everything came to the secretary. And, of course, the secretary's not really a threat. So even though I had management aspirations, people told me everything. If you're interested, people will tell you about the disciplinaries that they're dealing with, the contracts they're signing up to, what all the correspondence is about. It was a good way to learn. So once you had everyone's secrets, then was there like a moment like in a Marvel film where you just threw away the pencil, let down your hair and became clear version two and took over the world? How, how did you go from knowing all the secrets to uh, next stage? I like the melodramatic image, so I'm going to go with it and say, yes, there was. <laughs> I applied as an internal candidate to the graduate training programme and was immediately discounted because I wasn't 100% geographically mobile, which was one of the prerequisites. But my boss 
contacted the recruiters and insisted that I must be interviewed. Uh, and I didn't know that until much later. Somebody told me that four or five years later. And somewhat embarrassingly for the interviewers, I came top of their assessment centre and they had to offer me a job as a management trainee, wow. uh, even though I had a two-year-old. Yeah, so there we are. And of course, I know that uh, most of our listeners will, of course, be liberal arts grads and you know, cheering away. But the path at the time, so you've touched upon you know, gender, parenting, roles that are typically underappreciated but still important, given a chance. But the move then into a logistics career was by no means stereotypical then. No, and I would say it's not an obvious route for anybody to take because when you study at school, nobody will mention logistics to you. It's not in the national curriculum unless you do business A-level, in which case it'll be mentioned once. Whoa, really? Yeah. Wow. That's a, there are lots of serious nodding around the table. That's a very interesting point. But it's also, if it's been mentioned once, what's the reason for the one mention, as it were? Is it just sort of a passing, you know, it happens, let's move on? So depending which exam board you're doing, during business A-level, there might be one lesson where you get taught about the importance of logistics. And yet, if you look at the UK workforce, mm -hmm. something like about 7% of people who work in the UK work in logistics. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit of a mystery to me as, how, as to how they end up there, because we never mention it when you're a kid. My um, kids have been doing some uh, intern work in our research team and looking at suppliers and having to categorise them. So we've been having conversations like, Dad, what's the difference between outsourcing a 3PL? Which <laughs> called me a bad parent, but I find those very enjoyable dinner conversations. But again, you know, they, by them understanding more about how things get to shops, how, you know, behind the brand glamour, the reality of trade, of supply works, they're obviously better off. So maybe we need to um, have a little logistics in schools campaigns. Is this something that uh, you're working on? Absolutely. So there is an organisation called Think Logistics, and they have all sorts of materials that you can use to present in schools. But one of the most disappointing things they told me is that I'm not allowed to do it. So I'm nearly 50. And the problem is it's just not that engaging for kids if someone like me goes and talks to them about career opportunities. It works so much better if more senior people in the industry can persuade or allow the younger people to be the voice of it. That's what the Think Logistics experts have said is, mm. is most effective. Right, so we've now we've wandered into ageism as well. We're all, mm, we're all getting sad, <laughs> sad on the table. Anyway, so there you are, management trainee. How did you then get into logistics? And just tell us the route from being in operational logistics to the representative bodies side. So I've been in operational logistics then for about 25 years. I, I never looked back, you know. I worked for myself for a while, so I did quite a bit of project management as an interim manager. But I also was an employee at some quite big companies. So I was logistics manager for Solvay Chemicals, which is a Belgian firm that has some operations in the UK. I worked for Lafarge Cement and was responsible for the distribution of a lot of cement powder around the UK. And most recently, before I joined UKWA, I was the associate director director of warehousing for Coca-Cola, looking after warehouses full of soft drinks. I suppose what I've picked up from that is that most industries and businesses have some kind of stuff, like physical goods mm. of some sort. And if you need to store it or move it, then you're going to need some kind of logistics. Yeah. And why then move from the operational sharp end 
to UKWA. Tell us a bit about UKWA as you tell us why the move. So UKWA is a well-established trade association. It's been around for over 75 years. There are about 900 members and they're companies that are members, not individuals. Of the 900, something like 200 are associate members. So they've got some kind of goods or services they want to sell to warehousing companies. And then the other 700 are warehousing companies. And at the moment, they're predominantly third-party logistics companies. So they don't own the goods inside the warehouse. They're selling a warehousing service. Mm -hmm. Company, you know, some of the bigger companies you might know would be DHL, Wincanton, Eddie Stobart, Kalina, people like that. But of course, there are lots and lots of small businesses and family businesses that operate one or two warehouses as well. Hence, we've got about 700 members. Although we have a majority of the third party market, we don't have all that many members who operate their own warehousing like I used to when I was at Coca-Cola. Um, so there's some growth opportunities there. I wasn't really looking for a change. Actually, Coca-Cola is a great employer and I really enjoyed working there. But when I was first approached about this job at the UK Warehousing Association, there was something that made me feel that if somebody else were to get the job and do it badly, I'd be really angry. <laughs> um, so I, I'm very passionate about our industry. I think warehousing logistics more generally has a great opportunity to be a real engine of social mobility mm -hmm. because access into the industry is quite straightforward and there are a lot of career paths, but it doesn't have the best image or reputation. So I could see some opportunities and whilst I wasn't completely convinced that I'd be able to make the most of them, I was determined not to let somebody else hash it up. Yeah. So I put my hat in the ring for the job. How do you get past that? Because I mean, some of the big companies, that's not doesn't matter about names, but drive this poor reputation in some, in some ways. How do, they, how do you get past that? You know, What are the things that you can do to make it more positive for people to consider as a career? Well, when we were talking before about going into schools, I think that's an important part of it. Um, but also, the diversity of the workforce is pretty poor, and we need to do a bit of showcasing of what could be better. So I mentioned at the beginning that I'm vice chair of Women in Logistics, and that's an organisation that helps to encourage women to kind of get to know each other so that we can rival the old boys network a bit uh, in a friendly way. I mean, the organisation's open to men to join as well because we can all solve these problems together. But if you look at the sort of entry-level jobs, at the moment, something like about 2% of HGV drivers are female. For forklift truck drivers, it's worse. It's maybe 1.2%, something like that. Mm. Um, that. Surely that's not a meritocracy. That can't be right, can it? And is that because of representation so if you don't see people like you doing jobs like that you don't think that's a job for you so is it a case of you know the old ladybird books where you know nuclear families looked in one way and they were other and then your real life was a different lived experience so is it a case of representation or is it a case of active recruitment or a case of the talent pool where the physical warehouses are or something else? What, I mean, what's the reason for this disparity uh, in terms of employment profile? I absolutely love the question and I don't know the answer. So we've done some research fairly recently, actually, with Cranfield University, trying to unpick what are the things that really make a difference. Because if you, if you look for guidance on inclusion and diversity whether it's, you know, in a sort of broader context or specifically about gender, there are loads of ideas of things you should do and absolutely no evidence about what does or doesn't work. Mm. So the Cranfield research that we did did 
a light upon the concept of mentoring as being evidence-based. Uh, and what's quite interesting is that if you look at people in management, uh, you'll definitely find that more men than women experience mentoring in their careers. And I can't explain why that is, but it does seem as though it's a fairly quick win to try and redress the balance there. Which the women in logistics would, would help with. Yes, course. exactly. exactly. And I, I suppose as well, having a network, a supportive network that's outside of your own promotional pyramid. So people in competitors, peer groups, etc., being able to talk to them would be useful as well. I imagine that that's useful, although I haven't found any evidence that proves it for a fact, but it feels as though it would be useful, doesn't it? And yeah. and anything that makes you feel as though you're more welcome in the community is very valuable. And that's part of what I wanted to achieve at the UK Warehousing Association as well. You know, I haven't come in to overthrow the old regime and introduce a radical new way of working. What I've come in to do is, is to talk to the members, to understand what's important to them uh, and to build a really cohesive sense of community where people who care about warehousing mm. can talk to each other in a really safe environment and then between us we can decide what messages we want to share with the outside world, whether that's the media, policy makers, potential employees, mm. um, customers. You know, there are a lot of stakeholders who think they know what warehousing is about uh, and it's actually a lot more interesting than they think. Of course. I mean, one of the things you realise with a semi-journalistic or curious hat on is that there is no specialism too arcane to be interesting and the more you know about people's jobs the more interesting they all become so that's one of the uh, the joys of this but I think one of the hard things is you know having uh, kids who've just been going through career advice at school in terms of what to study then there aren't people who themselves have been exposed to warehousing to logistics and so I think there's there is an issue about awareness but um, I don't want to be the first to mention covid he says, managing COVID. But in a way, it has kind of surfaced logistics as the topic du jour. I mean, uh, you know, you can't get through a news bulletin without someone mentioning supply chain. Um, we see how over the pandemic, those who mastered availability, deliverability, returns, customer service, visibility, you know, are highly uh, rated by customers. And then you've also got the whole sustainability debate. So it's as if people have just said, oh, now that Claire's arrived, let's just make logistics as the top top topic everywhere. So uh, what are your thoughts on you know, a new, more visible role for logistics and supply chain? And then a few thoughts on sustainability. Well, thank you. And I'd like to agree with you that it's entirely because of my appointment that <laughs> logistics has got this wonderful new profile. <laughs> um, but uh, certainly the growth of e-commerce has made those people that think about it realise that there's a lot of logistics involved. Mm. So I think there's an advantage there. I mean, I, I did my master's as an adult at uh, Aston University, and they're one of the most well-respected for, for logistics. But there are a number of other universities, maybe about 16 or 17 in the UK, that offer something to do with logistics as a course. And almost all of them are reporting increased numbers. There's mm. a lot more interest. And it's because people are sort of waking up to the fact that logistics is important. You know, in a lot of businesses, supply chain directors are now a board director as opposed to being a sort of uh, annoying cost centre that sits in the corner and gets ignored as much as possible. Mm. But that is cyclical, though, isn't it? So, you know, we were talking about the last century 
and for our younger listener, that's you know before TikTok and before Facebook, uh, for the middle-aged uh, listener, in the last century, a board would have had a supply chain or operations director on there because we'd spent all this money on plugs, pipes, factories, bricks and mortar. Then they went out of fashion because people were our biggest asset and you had an HR director on. Then you had an IT director on because I just bought 10,000 servers. Then they became a CIO because it's all about info and data, an e-com director, now chief marketing, chief customer. And we're back, the wheel has turned, and now we have logistics back at the table with people understanding that. So this time around, what is the contribution or the visibility of the new style logistics professional? Is it just the same person 40 years older or is there a new breed of talent now? Well, I'd like to hope it's getting a bit more diverse. Um, We'll be waiting a long time to get gender equality in logistics if we carry on at the pace we're currently doing. So I'd like it to speed up a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the sorts of topics that are really important in logistics include sustainability that you were just asking me about before. We're seeing, for example, a lot of automation in warehousing. At the simple end, you've got conveyor belts being used instead of people carrying stuff. And and that's a, a good way to reduce the reliance on entry-level labour, but it's still a very, very labour-intensive part of the economy. And what we're really seeing is a bit of a shift away from those really, really simple jobs towards things that are a bit more complicated, which you would have seen initially with forklift trucks, for example. I sometimes draw a parallel between forklift truck driving and hairdressing in the sense that everybody describes them as low-skilled, but you don't want someone rubbish doing it. Or you don't want them to get confused on the way in and cut your hair <laughs> with a forklift truck. Jamie, what? why am I looking at you? Not that bad, is it? <laughs> no cameras, thank God. Yeah, no ca- there are no cameras for a reason. That's, that's a very good point. And again, with a lot of the increased automation, the fixes are now often system-based, ecosystem. So if your forklift truck stops working, it's not just the truck, it's part of, you know, maybe contiguity management or optimising your rack space for just-in-time delivery. So there are implications that people need to understand that previously they didn't need to. So, you know, it's even entry-level staff need a better understanding of the whole organisation now. I think so. And I think it's also changed what we think of in our sector as as functional skills. So if you talk to the Department for Education, they absolutely believe that functional skills are about being able to write sentences in English and being able to do simple maths. And as a human right, I'm not against that as being, you know, skills that are important for everybody to, to acquire. But if you want to work in a warehouse for the entry level jobs that are available, those skills are not as important as being able to look at an error message on a screen and knowing what to do in, in response to it so those triage skills absolutely yeah Yeah. so i think what we think of as functional skills may may be changing because of the level of automation and digitalization that we're seeing Mm -hmm. in in all walks of life actually but we're definitely seeing that in warehousing yeah well as someone who uh, studied wordsworth for a while i always found that a few couplets always (laughs) solve most most problems (laughs) so claire as we look into 2022 What's on your agenda for for next year for your members? If if you're saying this is where we're going to focus next year, what's that on? Well, straight after the government budget at the end of October, we did a survey of members and we asked them about what was going to be the most important thing in 2022 in light of the fiscal climate. And it was absolutely unanimous, labour shortages. 
That is the top concern. We've heard a lot about shortages of HGV drivers, and I'm absolutely not going to undermine any of what's been said there. But what we're not hearing is about the shortage of other types of labour uh, in logistics. Mm. So, for example, there are something like 60,000 forklift truck drivers in the UK. In the past, and I'm only talking a couple of years ago, more than 20,000 of them were EU nationals. The proportion now that are EU nationals has dropped from 32% to, I think it's about 16%. Mm. So that's been quite a, a, a drain on resources. Yeah. And at the same time, our demand for labour is going up because there are actually activities that used to take place on the high street that are being pushed back up the supply chain into the warehouse where you're preparing goods for e-commerce delivery at the warehouse location, and that's driving yeah. a demand for more labour when we've got less. So yeah. labour shortages are absolutely key. And and part of how I think we need to resolve that is by focusing on training. So according to some, some statistics I saw just yesterday, there are fewer than 300 people who are trained forklift drivers who are looking for work in the UK at the moment. I mean, it's so tiny as to be almost insignificant. So we're only going to solve that gap if we invest in training. So I'm recruiting at the moment for a head of training for the UK Warehousing Association. And it's not because we want to become a training provider. Uh, it's because we want to be able to help our member companies to navigate the training provision and the arrangements for funding uh, to be able to really make the most of that. Mm. So that's going to be a priority for 2022. Good to hear. And just on the balance of the supply and demand across the country for labour, is it, I mean, because I know this, you live in the middle of the country, you were telling us before, you know, is it all centred there where all the supply is of people uh, or is it, is it nicely evenly spread across the country? Because I suspect it wouldn't be, would it? I know that sounds like a daft question, but you've got to fulfil all parts of the country, haven't you? So... Well, there's always been an epicentre for warehousing in the East Midlands, in what we would refer to as the Golden Triangle. It's not um, gold. I've been there. <laughs> it, it wasn't gold. I'm busy. <laughs> it, was, it was very misty. Yeah, well, maybe silver then. <laughs> um, people who were outside of that area used to be a bit smug about being insulated from labour shortages in the sense that, you know, they weren't competing for the same, uh, you know, group of potential employees. Uh that is no longer the case. Mm. So, you know, other important areas uh, for logistics are often around the ports. Uh, and we know there's some government changes coming with the concept of free ports, which might help with that. But those kind of areas are seeing just as much demand and competition for labour. Uh, mm. And the problem is there's quite a lot of transient labour in the entry level jobs. So warehousing companies quite frequently at least in the past, would have relied quite heavily on agency labour. And people who work for an agency are not going to be loyal because why would they? Yeah, so not. if another employer is offering a bit more money in another local warehouse, then there'll be a bit of an mm. exodus. And we've typically seen that and it's not getting any better. Especially where, you know, we've had the last couple of months, the was it the Great Resignation, where people who've been stressed and uh, overworked over the pandemic and now saying, right, well, we're off. And so I think there is a, a feeling of people losing, especially entry level or losing skills and not being able to recruit them. So it is quite a challenging time. 
Yes, but having said that, there may be a way in which we can capitalise on that because a lot of warehouse work doesn't require you to take the stress home. You know, if, if you want a job where you go to work and you do something productive where you can see the fruits of your labour, that can be quite rewarding emotionally, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you go home and you hand over to the next shift and, and they deal with the, the work that still needs to be done. So if we can if we can improve our image, perhaps we can make more of that. Well, Claire, you've done a lot to improve that image today. So um, if any of our listeners are interested in applying, then drop a note to Claire. Thank you very much. Now, uh, I have no segues. I have nothing clever. This is just a zero-clutch gear shift change. (laughs) (laughs) Gavin, so last time we chatted face-to-face was a decade ago, and I think you were just leaving Facebook and going to Tesco Video. I remember. Then chat, chat, email, email, little update saying, hi, I'm leaving Tesco. I'm setting up a legal cannabis business when cannabis was definitely not legal and may have just gone from class B to class C and back again. So there was no market. You couldn't even promote it. You couldn't touch it without being imprisoned. Um, Brave move. Mm. So do you want to pick up there and just start explaining uh, how I landed up in the medical cannabis industry? Lovely. That yeah. would be great. So how I got into medical cannabis. I, I trained as a chemical engineer. I spent the first five years of my career at Bain, the consulting firm, went off to the US to get an MBA and then came back in 2008 at the beginning of the financial crisis when all of my peers were going off to be sort of hedge fund titans. Uh, and I got very interested in uh, the world of digital media while I was in the US. So until then... You were like every parent's dream child. Kind of. Hyper-achieving, you know, tick, 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 corporate tick. career, you know. And they say, um, hey, yeah. um, social media. So after they've thrown you out of the house, just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, actually, it was one of my old professors from business school who wrote a piece of research in 2014 called Marketing Marijuana in Colorado. And it just struck me. I thought, why is an academic in the US writing about this industry? So I, I wrote to him and said, what's going on? And he said, Gavin, this is the biggest event since the birth of the web. There's a $200 billion uh, illicit industry that's going to migrate to the legal channel over the next two decades. It's going to have a knock-on impact in the alcohol industry, in tobacco, and in pharmaceuticals. Uh, And if you're in the US, it's sort of an entrepreneur's perfect storm because the US federal government says this is illegal, but individual state legislatives say it's legal. So uh, that precludes big business getting in. So as an entrepreneur, oh, nice one. I you can go and start a business. So um, I quit my job at Tesco. I joke with people that I left the uh, fastest appreciating stock in the S&P, which was Facebook, and joined the fastest declining stock in the FTSE, which was Tesco. And uh, So just as they brought Dave Lewis in, yeah. uh, and he basically said, look, if you're not doing food in the UK, in the store, this isn't the place for you. And I thought, I'm a digital guy doing data platforms. This isn't for me. And so decided to quit my job. I put my place up on an Airbnb in London and moved to Boulder, Colorado with my wife and two kids for the summer of 2015. Sorry, uh, like I don't want to pry, but just summarise that conversation for me, which is <laughs> you arrive home and say... Uh, so I didn't tell my parents for about a year uh, that I was doing this. I couldn't. Um, and uh, my wife was very supportive. And at the, at the time, it was sort of, let's just go and explore. Let's go to Colorado. My kids were two and four at the time. Let's go hiking and see what's going on. And I guess once you go and see what's happening in the US, you realize just what this industry looks like. It's very different to our mental model over here. So I was seeing uh, middle America, typically people in their 40s, 50s and 60s going in to buy 
low-dose cannabis products primarily to help them with their sleep, pain, mm -hmm. anxiety, um, sort of mood enhancement, appetite enhancement. So it was very different to the sort of mental model that we had, you know, if you read the Daily Mail or we see what the government said this week about sort of yeah, yeah. drug users. And it looked to me as if this was a category that was going to replace over-the-counter medications. So if you look at the types of uh, medicines we use for painkilling right now, there's a clear impact with the opioid crisis exactly. in the US. We can talk a lot about SSRIs and antidepressants and sort of waning efficacy. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about the pandemic and the impact on mental health, but we need a new class of drugs here. Mm -hmm. So I spent that summer of 15 in the US and sort of got religion about what was happening. As you say, you can't talk to many people about this, though. Uh, so I came back to London. I was fortunate in that because of what was happening in California, a lot of my old Facebook network were sort of a little bit more enlightened about what was happening here. And so I reached out to a bunch of my old colleagues uh, and started to build a network. And it was a very challenging time because you couldn't talk to people. There was a sort of social judgment passed upon you. Um, but in any case, managed to raise some money uh, in London at the back end of 2015. We raised about three million pounds. Uh, I then moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, where I opened up a cannabis dispensary mm -hmm. uh, in downtown Vegas. And again, again, just in case uh, any of our listeners read the Daily Mail, which obviously I'd, I'd hope not, the archetypes when you mention cannabis mm -hmm. are obviously young people, yeah. drugs, crimes. You have that bucket. You've then got uh, the other concept, which is medical cannabis, yeah. which seems to be simultaneously you can hold both things one yeah. could even head. There's uh, ideas around the whole production side with hemp mm -hmm. and with the eco yeah. wonder fabric that yeah. uh, comes from that. You then got a lot of cultural stuff dating back, you know, thousands of years when the Romans brought yeah. hemp to the UK. And lastly, then got um, the derivatives where people aren't quite sure what's what from jellies to mm -hmm. cookies. So it's actually expanded a vocabulary of things that people maybe don't understand and don't know how they fit together. Yeah, look, it's a very complex plant. Um, so first eaten as a food 10,000 years ago in China, hemp, hemp seeds, mm -hmm. um, rich source of proteins. First used for religious purposes about 5,000 years ago, so the first records, and it's sort of intimately tied up with Hinduism, Judaism, early religions. But as a hallucinogenic or... As a psychoactive, Sorry. yeah, as a psychoactive, yeah. And hemp was the sixth most... Uh, cultivated crop around the globe until the beginning of the 1900s. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, Henry VIII mandated hemp to be grown. It was of course grown for in... naval ropes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Armies for the Russian, uh, sorry, uniforms for the Russian army. I mean, it was, it was a widely cultivated crop. And I did read somewhere in my Googling yeah. that apparently the UK is a net exporter of cannabis even though it's not legal correct so look, there are multiple sort of regulatory frameworks here and each of them applies to a different industry so in that sort of very strict pharmaceutical application of cannabis yeah the uk is a market leader we make medicines for pain for epilepsy uh, we grow huge greenhouses full of cannabis in east anglia and not in the golden triangle not in the golden triangle not yet. Made it to the Midlands, yet. but yeah i'm sure there are going to be greenhouses there in the future so in that in that pharmaceutical space we've done a lot of work in the uk uh, there's this second regulatory framework, which is sort of adjacent to pharmaceuticals. It's called unlicensed medicines, which is where a lot of the cannabis medicines sit at the moment. And essentially, I guess a little bit of the history here. So, you know, 1900s, this plant is banned. At the beginning of the 1980s, at the start of the AIDS epidemic in California, 
lots of gay men were having chemotherapy and they were finding therapeutic benefit from mm. cannabis for nausea, for appetite promotion, for sleep. Uh, and so there's a very tight link between sort of cannabis legalization and the gay community, which is why California was where it was very prominent. Mm. So that was in the early 80s. And then sort of three regulatory frameworks were set up in 1996, California, Canada and Israel. And so those are the three kind of geographies. Israel's very progressive on this. I think that's an odd combination. Of just, uh, yeah. Um, and again, this is this is to get the psychoactive aspects of cannabis. Correct. Yeah. So there are sort of three constituent chemical classes within cannabis, uh, cannabinoids. And you guys may have heard of CBD. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of THC. There are another 140 of these cannabinoids. Um, they're a new class of chemicals, which I think will develop some serious medicines in mm. over the next few years. Um, the second set uh, of chemicals are called terpenes, which give it the characteristic smell. These terpenes are not uh, unique to cannabis. They're found in plants um, yeah. throughout the plant kingdom and also provide... As benefits. we say to the police, officer, yes. it's a very widely recognisable smell. There's nothing in, to do indeed, with indeed. either me or Jamie. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then flavonoids, the third class of chemicals, which give plants their colour. Uh, and so these naturally occurring compounds show huge benefit for mm. a wide range of conditions. Uh, there's a system within the body called the endocannabinoid system, which is basically designed to process these compounds. And essentially, when you look at the sort of large disease areas which cannabinoids or cannabis can address, you know, pain, uh, autoimmune conditions like Crohn's disease, arthritis, um, neurological conditions, we've seen the impact on epilepsy. There are some very mm. famous cases of kids with epilepsy uh, who've got these medicines now. But yeah. there are also applications in things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And then finally, cancer. Uh, and that's both for palliative, you know, therapeutic relief at the end of life, but also there are examples of cancer shrinking. Um. So over the pandemic, we've seen ideas of chemical investigations, yeah. whether it's for uh, antiviral or various treatment paths, we're seeing gene sequencing, tailored medicines. Mm -hmm. So it seems as if we're at a stage now where the conversation you're having fits in with national pride in British gene prowess with yeah, big mean, farmers. Absolutely. Saying, let's yeah. just, let's stop talking about them in the old fashioned way. Yeah. These are yeah. wonder drugs. 100%. And so I guess my, my journey to where I am today is I, I had this sort of experience in the US, you know, with a dispensary, understanding these these medicines. And then when Trump was elected, that sort of marked the end of my US foray, came back and started to develop businesses in the UK. The, the first business I developed was a company called Oxford Cannabinoid Technologies. We approached Oxford University to do research into these four areas, as I say, pain, mm -hmm. cancer, neuro, etc., and raise some money. We listed that business this year. And so we've started developing sort of medicines. But what the way I describe this is my time at Facebook, I sort of got to witness digital transformation of media companies, of retail companies. And really the, the final three holdouts, in my view, around digitization were banking, education and healthcare. Mm. They were the three industries that were, you know, not really moving. The impact of the pandemic on healthcare has been profound. 
in, in terms of digitization, it sort of yes. accelerated things by 10 years. Uh, and I felt uniquely positioned as a guy who both understood some of these naturally occurring medicines that don't quite fit the profit formula for big pharma, that are complex because they're not single molecules. Uh, so I'd had that experience of sort of witnessing how patients deal with their problems, but I'd also had this background in technology. And so merging those two experiences together allowed me to build a data platform to understand these medicines. And as you say, I now turn up at, you know, the NIHR or the NHS and I kind of they speak our language now as sort of technologists, you know, yes. um, to try and understand how they can use data in much more interesting ways, how they can drill down to the individual patient so we can get to that level of personalization, how we can use AI to become predictive mm -hmm. about these things. And what's been really interesting is um, at Facebook, we used to say move fast and break things. It was almost kind of act and then ask for forgiveness later. And it's had a knock-on yeah. impact now, as we can see. But interestingly, um, people, I remember talking to the uh, CTO at MS some years ago, and he was saying that uh, he had the digital team, but he also ran a bank. Mm -hmm. And he said that it's all well and good being agile and, you know, best effort with a website, but no one wants to iterate their current account yeah. or have 95% accuracy. So in a way, the change has been an acceptance of not knowing today, but agreeing on a path to knowing. Yeah. So if you think back to March 2020, Everybody's saying, we don't know. We have a tiny data set. We don't know the vectors. We're gathering data. So we, in a way, we've seen science and research progress yeah. at the pace of, of learning data. Now, there's a real understanding, I think, of the investigative scientific model. Yes. I think the big difference in healthcare is the role of the regulator. That's where it gets really interesting. And what the impact of the pandemic has been has to move the role of the regulator from gatekeeper, almost yes, no, to enabler. Because mm. the regulator has had to work with industry to figure out how to come up with these rapid solutions. So what do we do on vaccines, on ventilators, on big data when it comes to COVID tracking? And so the MHRA, to their credit, has become much more flexible. And I think that's a very positive sign for the next decade mm. around how we develop these healthcare services. So let's look then at the business model. And maybe I can throw you in the middle of this because... Mm. If we'd been talking pre-pandemic, people would have been saying two things in healthcare to make money. One is steal and sell everyone's data so that you can mine it, decide whether to give you insurance or not. And the other would be lawyer up to the eyeballs and patent everything, including, you know, breathtakingly obvious things, mm -hmm. just own the gene sequence. You seem to be talking about a different, different type world of model. Yeah. That's maybe sneaking in the middle or around the back. So tell us how, how you look at this yeah. now as a business. Yeah, no, so you're absolutely right. The sort of traditional big pharma business model has been to invest hundreds of millions of pounds into patentable molecules and test those molecules over three phases of clinical trials. And then you can prove that the molecule works, then you get a sort of 20-year window to monetize that molecule before it becomes a generic. That doesn't work for naturally occurring compounds because... You can't patent something that occurs in nature. Although lawyers are trying. Well, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. <laughs> Synthetic analogs or, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. But, you know, for millennia, we've used plants and there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world using naturally occurring substances today. But because the business model doesn't quite fit the R&D objectives, it's very challenging to develop the evidence to persuade the regulator that they should approve these medicines. So my view is, if we can exponentially lower the cost of doing research and exponentially broaden 
mm. the base over which we do that research, we can start to build the evidence base in a very different way. So the randomized control trial is a sort of narrow but deep data collection exercise. What mobile technologies and wearables affords us is the opportunity to go much more broad at a lower mm. cost. Uh, and so that that's really where it's going to get interesting with the regulator, how we treat the data and, and what the new business models will look like on the back of that. There's some really interesting questions around data ownership. We used to kick these ideas around again at Facebook. You know, I think for a kind of individual, the notion of data ownership at Facebook was also always a bit abstract. And we used to try and get people to think about how they could respect privacy settings and think about how they might monetize their data. I think it's very different in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I think having your own genetic sequence on your phone or your own healthcare records on your phone, there's going to be a degree of ownership over your own healthcare that we're going to have to see because if we continue to go down this road of letting people get sick and then trying to remedy it, we're never going to find the economic resources to to, to deal with it. So it's going to be much yeah. more focused on taking ownership of how your well-being manifests itself. But to link back to a comment Claire made about training, one of the things we've seen over the pandemic is, for example, people aren't very good at statistics and probability, A, mathematically and b when it comes to their own risk profiles so you'll have people saying i don't want to get vaccinated because it's dangerous but not realizing there's a seventeen thousand times higher chance of something else happening so how is, is this even your problem but when people are more involved with their data surely there's going to need to be more training and conversation about what education this, what this means absolutely yeah for sure. And I think, you know, the socially responsible companies of the future will take it upon themselves to educate their mm. customers, patients, users, whatever term you want to use, about the data that they're collecting mm. and what steps they can take to improve their life outcomes. Um, so tell us about your business now then. Yeah. So we, we know what it's not. You're no longer in a white coat mm-hmm. dispensing things in Colorado. And you introduced it by saying it was health and data. So yeah. what, what's your current position and trajectory? Well, let me give you the story about Altaflora. I, I, I started Altaflora in 2018, and I originally wanted to grow cannabis plants in southern Europe. So I went to see the governments in Malta, in Greece, in Portugal. I said, hey, let's put up greenhouses, we'll grow these plants, we'll make these medicines, and then we can provide them to patients. And it turned out that every single other entrepreneur in Europe was doing a similar thing, going to see the government, get the licenses, that's something you can do. I was then talking to doctors and doctors were saying, look, you know, Sajid Javid may have rescheduled this, but we don't have the evidence to show that it's safe, efficacious or cost effective. And until Mm -hmm. we get that evidence, we're not going to prescribe. And so I started to shift away from thinking about the supply side and started to think about the demand side and how you can take away those demand side inhibitors. And so how do you get that evidence? Well, you go and ask the patients, you know, how are you consuming your medicine? What impact does that consumption have on whatever symptom you have, be it pain, anxiety, depression, whatever the case may be. And so I started to build this data platform. And it turned out that the patients were basically saying, look, I can kind of figure this stuff out for myself. But the companies who are producing the medicines were saying, we need that data. We need that data to go and prove to the regulators that our medicines work. Mm. And so I started to just shift our proposition slightly towards building a data platform for producers of medicines. And so we now onboard companies who are looking to collect data from kids who've got epilepsy, And so a version of our app is made for parents to track frequency, intensity, and type of seizure. We've built a version of our app for people suffering from long COVID who are using CBD to see how cannabinoids impact on things like breathlessness and fatigue. Mm. Uh, We've got applications in women's health. In fact, we've looked at the NAHR inclusion strategy. So if you look at healthcare research, to your point on sustainability, 
all the way through from sort of preclinical, you know, the animals we use are not female. Why? Because they have a cycle. And so all the way through to the final cohorts of patients who are recruited, which typically are young white males that live around universities because they get paid, there is a lack of uh, diversity and inclusion in how we collect this data. And what mobile technology should allow us to do is to go and collect data from everybody. Uh, And so we've started Mm. to really look at where are there underrepresented communities and under-researched conditions whereby exponentially lowering the cost of doing the research, you can start to gather the data. Wow. I'm slightly stunned. Yes, I am stunned as well, but I'm going to ask a slightly different question. You know, you said before that you left America for various reasons and that you went to America in the first place and you saw in America that it was very different to what our perception of Mm -hmm. the industry was here. Had you stayed in America... Um, what would have, where would you be now? Uh, I'd pick schools in Santa Monica to move to. <laughs> I'd persuaded my wife we were going to move to California. You know, if you go back to 2016, none of us thought Brexit would happen. I was raising money to spend mm. in, in pounds, to spend in dollars. So I lost 20% of my capital raise on June the 23rd or whatever it was. Mm. And then in November of that year, none of us thought Trump was going to get elected. We all thought Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. And Hillary was, you know, the expectation was that she would... Uh, then legalize cannabis at the federal level. So if I'd stayed there, I think I would have been in California or Arizona, you know, building a business. I've got this line that I use, cannabis is on a journey from drug to medicine to lifestyle, Mm. depending on where you're on the world. You can now drive from Alaska to Mexico and buy cannabis anywhere. But not drive. That's, that's what I mean. Not, no, exactly. <laughs> because you would have been doing more of that side of it rather of the than brand what you're of doing now. Yeah, yes. absolutely. More of the brand of products. So the US is much more of a CPG type market. Mm. Yeah, brand mm-hmm. of products. Whereas Europe, so the US is on this journey from medicine to lifestyle mm. and Europe is on this journey from drug to medicine. Interesting. Um, and as it gets normalized here, you will start to see many more products sold in retailers like Tesco and Asda. Yeah. And, and you're sort of seeing that. I mean, you, you see that in the US already. It's... Yeah. Uh, it's everywhere. Question though, um, this all sounds lovely. And it sounds like you're a one man money raising, world changing engine. But I haven't asked you how you make money. So, in between all this doing good, inclusion, data, et cetera, we, what's the business model yeah, for we, you guys in we, between? We charge companies for the use of our platform. So, it's data infrastructure, a little bit like Amazon Web Services for clinical trials. So, wow. I have the urge to just stop there because that's the third zinger of an aphorism you've given us. And I think that uh, is a good point to pause. Not for any good reason, just simply time is is running out. Uh, Gavin, absolutely fascinating. What a journey. And I kind of feel that, uh, you know, we're not even midway through it. So fascinating to see if you like the the new guises that the digital revolution is able to take as it extends beyond shopping and entertainment. So absolutely fascinating. Claire, Lovely seeing you. Thanks for coming into the studio. Uh, Jamie, that was it. Our first real life. Uh, let's hope it's not the last one for a while. What a corker. Let's come and do it again. I think there's something in this. Good. So um, all we can say is thanks for joining us. Masks on, jabs in, and let's hope that uh, things stay open enough so we can do our next one in the studio as well. <laughs> so it's goodbye from us, and thanks for joining us, and happy trading. Oh, that wow, was that was brilliant. It was so nice to hear. I mean, it's always good to hear about all stories, but those two stories are very different from, for, probably for us and for brilliant. the listener. So. There is a small country missing a president. You know that, Gavin, don't you? <laughs> what do you mean? Just saying, you know, you're wasted in uh, Why are you saying medicine? a small country? You'd be much better than Trump. <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs>
I just thought, that's it, just start off with a small one and then roving president for hire. Oh, I don't know about that. I've got work to do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what is the training process for becoming president? There isn't one really, is there? Obviously not. No. Uh, hey, uh, we need to go because I've got Greg. Yes, sorry. Yeah. 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 That was brilliant. That was Thank it. you. <laughs> Oof.